You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we're grateful that you brought us together on this uh, Lord's Day, and thank you for the word that we've heard already, the good word and reminder um, of uh, the centrality of the gospel in our Lord Jesus, and uh, we're thankful. Lord, you fed us with the preaching of your word and the celebration of the sacrament, and now I pray that you will open our minds and our hearts to understand um, the book of Genesis a little bit more, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I... I think we're, uh, I'm doing three weeks on this class. Oh, I'm trying to remember how the schedule set up. I, I'm out of town next week weekend, so we'll we'll start Genesis today. Uh, we'll take a one w- week uh, break, and then we'll come back together for two more weeks to do Genesis. Um, so this is going to be a kind of aerial view of the book of Genesis. And if there are particular aspects of the book that you'd like to press into. Um, feel free to interrupt me or send me an email or something and we'll see what, what we can do. Um, but uh, this week I'm going to focus on creation um, and maybe get to fall as well, but I, I doubt we will. Um, the next week we'll probably be do, probably do, um, well goodness, now that I say it, maybe I should have entitled this just the primeval history. Um, <laughs> Uh, we'll, we'll see where we go. I won't commit myself to anything. Uh, anyway, so if you have Bibles, so let's go to Genesis chapter 1. And think a little bit out loud about the ways in which the book of Genesis is put together um, canonically and theologically. Now, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, uh, verse 3. And I'm going to use this today a little bit. That's all right. Um, so Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, often referred to as um, the first creation account. Okay, so that's the first one. And then you have Genesis uh, 2, 4, through the end of the chapter is the second creation account. Talk about the relationship between these two. So that's the second creation account. And then you get into Genesis chapter 3, um, which is referred to as the fall. Now, we'll have to talk about that. There's some debates, even within the history of interpretation, about how to best understand Genesis chapter 3. But I'll wait till we get there to kind of delve into that a little bit. But first of all, if you look in your Bibles, you'll notice something about Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is one of those verses I actually memorized. I, make, I think I make my students memorize it in Hebrew. Um, Bereshit bara, um, et hashemayim ve'et ha'aretz. Right? In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Um, interestingly enough, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, is seven words in Hebrew. Um, that's that's not an accident uh, that it's seven words in Hebrew. I mean, it's, again, it's speaking to the completion and the totality and the perfection of what God did in His creative moment. Um, I lots of debates about the relationship between Genesis one one and Genesis one two. 
Um, my sense is Genesis 1-1 stands as, a, as an al- almost an isolated uh, descriptor verse of everything that comes after, um, assuming uh, the centrality of God and God's creative activity. And we'll, maybe we'll come back to that. Um, but this is uh, how uh, the uh, first creation account begins. But if you go to the second creation account, you'll notice something, how it starts. You see this? Uh, how, how many of you have done a class on Genesis before? Like a full-on... Uh, so this might be old hat for some of you, forgive me. Now, but you notice verse 4 begins, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Do you see that? Uh, now, that word there is... Have you? Raise your hand if you've heard this before. I'm just curious. Uh, Toledot. Is that familiar? Yeah. Well, your son probably got you all on that. Um, Toledot, which, which has its roots in the Hebrew word Yaled, there, which if you're ever in the Middle East and you hear a Middle Eastern mother running after a child, even in Arabic, you would hear to this day, Yaled, Yaled, Yaled. I, I, can, I was in Cyprus years ago, um, and I can remember hearing some of these Arabic mothers from Lebanon running after their children yelling, Yaled, Yaled. I'm like, Yaled, that means child, right? They're like, yes. Um, Yaled means to, to bring forth, uh, to bear. Um, a woman will bear a son and his name shall be called Emmanuel. That's the Hebrew verb yelled to bear, to bear a child. Well, you can see here how this word, I'm oh, sorry, wrong, wrong one. Why? Um, Y-L-D is sort of built off of that Hebrew verb to bear. Um, what, so, Genelite, what's the big deal? The big deal is that's the literary pattern, this Toledote pattern, by which the whole of the book of Genesis is put together. All of it. So, for example, here you have Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created. Then you go to Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Again, you have a Toledote pattern. You go to Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. You go to Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. My dad would be cursing right now. He doesn't like having to flip his Bible a lot. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then you move on through. So there are, if I count them up, um, nine Toledote patterns in the book of Genesis. Ending with the narrative about Jacob and the, the generations of Jacob as, as realized through his son, Joseph. Now, why do I say that? I say that because, of course, there are lots of critical theories out there about how the book of Genesis came together. I will not bore you with those or you know, run the risk of doing damage to your soul with those. Um, but uh, it is interesting to see, at least on final analysis, how the whole of the book of Genesis is put together in a very um, shrewd and literarily sensitive way. There's a, there's a deep structure here to the book in the ways in which we have it. And it's all built around this. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. Another way of understanding the book of Genesis, though, structurally, and this is probably one that most of us are familiar with, is dividing uh, Genesis 1 through 11 with Genesis 12 to 50. Um, you're familiar with this division, I imagine. Genesis 1 to 11 is often referred to as what? Um, the, the primeval history, right? So you have the primeval history here. And it's a wild ride. I mean, think about everything that we have in Genesis 1 through 11. 
We have the creation of Adam and Eve and the whole created order. We have the fall of humanity. We have the implications of that fall as sin begets more sin. Get into the Cain and Abel story. Genesis chapter 6, you have the Nephilim who are these sort of giant offsprings of the angels who are sleeping with the sons of daughters. I mean, it's a what? I mean, my kids would love this. This is like Mordor come to, you know, come to life. Um, then it all ends with the tower, with the flood moving into the Tower of Babel. And of course we know even on the far side of the flood, what happens right after the waters recede and, and, uh, and Noah and his children set up civilization again, we can't even get out of the chapter before we see sin uh, doing its thing again, uh, before it's even out. They, they plant a vineyard, they drink wine, they get drunk to excess, and then things uh, get really kind of ugly in, in the scene. Uh, culminating at Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. So here you have the Tower of Babel, again, the sons of humanity seeking to make a name for themselves, seeking to do so in a way that sets themselves up over against God as their created Lord. And God comes down and He, what does He do? He takes the cosmos of their words and common language, the order of their civilization that's built around a common tongue, and He takes it back to what? Something that's now chaotic again. All of a sudden, my neighbor, I can't understand him or her anymore. We've gone from cosmos back to chaos. So that's kind of this, if you want to think of a big view here of Genesis 1 to 11, it's chaos to cosmos in Genesis chapter 1, with sin in Genesis chapter 3, introducing the chaos again, culminating in that ultimate chaotic moment, namely the Tower of Babel and dispersion of the languages throughout all the nations. It's, it's a really rather wild move from chaos to cosmos and back to chaos again. And what, does, what is God's answer to the chaos of sin in Genesis chapter 11? His answer is Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant. He enters into covenant with this man, um, and then goes uh, from this man to let his seed be the means by which he would bless all the nations. Just as a curiosity aside, I'm not sure why, um, but my wife, she's not here. Is she in here? Okay. Um, I probably wouldn't do this if she were in here. But my wife has gotten fascinated by ancient civilizations. She's found some YouTube things or something. You know, they have these... Um, massive stones that have been cut from some sort of primeval tool that we don't even know how they could pull it off. I mean, the, 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 you know, the, the achievements from a sort of architectural and engineering standpoint of, of the ancient mind um, is really remarkable. Gerald Bray, a colleague of mine um, from uh, Beeson Divinity School, many of you, have any of you had Gerald before? He's, he's a wild ride in the class. Um, Gerald, uh, he, he said, this is something that was interesting about the church fathers and shows something about the hubris of modernity, our own arrogance in our time. We tend to think that we're just getting smarter and better. He said that really wasn't the way in which the ancient mind worked. The ancient mind understood that older people were probably smarter and more intelligent than they were. Um, and, and this was a footnote in one of Gerald's uh, uh, pieces that I require my students sometimes to read. He says, the church fathers would have known about the pyramids and realized they couldn't pull it off in their day. I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable. So, um, must all to say, my wife is, is fascinated. I just got her a book on the Sumerians, who were kind of the sort of the first civilization that gave rise in time to the ba- to the Babylonians, and and uh, and these and, and the, it was a very sophisticated civilization. So, when we think about Abraham getting called out of 
the Ur of the Chaldees from Haran as he makes his way on, you know, and we tend to think of somebody, you know, some sort of, I don't know, country bumpkin from wherever. I mean, th- these are people who are from very impressive civilizations. That are, and, and that's, that's the world from which Abraham gets called to go out into the wilderness to follow God's leading to who knows where he's going to go, as, as, we'll, as we'll see. Okay. So that's the way in which the kind of book ends. Can I give you another big view here? Um, here's, here's the Goodyear blimp. God promises in Genesis chapter 12 that he's going to, through Abraham's offspring, through his Zerah, his seed, he's going to bless the whole world. Um, lots of debates among scholars these days about what that term actually means, bless the whole world. Some will argue that that's more reflexive. They will bless themselves by Abraham's name. Um, I, I don't think that's the case. In other words, the whole nations will use a blessing like this. May you be blessed like Abraham was blessed. That, that's how they understand that verse. Um, I actually do understand Genesis 12:3 as missional. It is through your seed that the whole world will be blessed. Not bless themselves, but they will be blessed through your offspring. So that's the promise that's made really out of, out of what would seem an impossible situation. Uh, there's a reason why uh, Abraham and Sarah's son is named Itzach, which in Hebrew means laughter. I mean, he, he is this kind of cosmic joke that God delivers to Abraham um, and to Sarah in their old age. They have Isaac, and then Isaac has uh, Jacob and Esau, and then uh, Jacob and, e- and then Jacob has his 12 children who then become the tribal children. But this is the question I want to leave with you about, kind of, again, a big view of what's going on in the book. I've often wondered, um, given the ways in which this book moves, think about it. Genesis 1 to 11 covers a span of time from the creation of the world. Who knows when that was? I'm not a young earth person, if you're wondering. I mean, so we're talking about some really, I mean, it's a massive expanse of time up into a particular moment of the Tower of Babel. And then when you get to Genesis 12 to 50, here you have this particular, a much larger literary section dealing with three generations of Abraham and his offspring. So, I mean, it's as if you go from this wide panoramic lens down to this sort of very narrow focus, ending the whole book with a much more narrower focus, if I can put it that way. Namely, the story of Joseph. Why the Joseph narrative? Why so much time given to Joseph? Now, in the world of my upbringing... You know, Joseph served as a kind of moral exemplar. You know, this is this is what you do when um, you know wayward women come chasing after you. I can remember songs like this growing up. A Potiphar's wife comes and throw. I can just remember preachers growing up saying, "And you know, Potiphar's wife had to have been beautiful." Um, and she threw herself at Joseph. And I mean, I actually remember songs growing up saying things like, "Put on your running shoes," based off of the. That's true. Oh, I'm not, I'm not making that up. You know what I'm talking about. Um, put on your running shoes, get away from her, you know, and fair enough. I mean, if you want to do that, that's fine. Um, but why this long narrative about Joseph? Because I believe Joseph provides for us, before we even get out of the book of Genesis, Joseph provides for us a down payment on the covenantal promises that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Here in Genesis chapter 12, God says, through your offspring, the whole world will be blessed. It's a redemptive promise to the world through the offspring of Abraham. And before we even get out of the book through incredibly difficult 
a circumstance of Joseph, this father of Israel, is on the throne of Egypt being the instrument that God uses to preserve of the known world at the time. Um, it's remarkable. So before we even get out of the book of Genesis, God is making good on the Abrahamic promise. Uh, now, of course, I read this redemptively and typologically in relationship to Israel's ultimate son, uh, namely Jesus Christ, um, but we'll save that for another time. Now, that's your aerial view of Genesis. Two ways of thinking about it structurally. All right, you have the Toledot pattern, which is built in, and then also the primeval history, along with the patriarchal history. Before I press on, what time is it over there? 11, Any questions you want to ask about that? Anything about Genesis and its structure? Any sort of troubling matters that you're... Okay. Um, so back to Genesis chapter 1 then. Back to Genesis 1. Yeah. I don't want to chase this. Just wanted to yeah. For answer. The, the uh, academic view some number of years ago about the P writer and the Q writer and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> in, the, in the academic world, has that been largely thoroughly done away with? No, I don't think so. Um, it was taught, by the way, in this church, in the dean's class. Was it? Yeah. Um, Briefly. Yeah, I mean, it's not gone away. I mean, this is an old, what's called the source critical view on the Pentateuch that identifies. Um, four sources that kind of work their way through. So think about Tom Cruise in the Minority Report, you know, when he's got that sort of futuristic gloves on and he's sitting before that big board and he's moving things around. That's that's kind of what source critics have done. So here you have the book of Genesis, and I have to take Genesis chapter 1. That's kind of priestly in nature. Um, uh, they don't mention the name Yahweh in Genesis 1. Therefore, that's a priestly document. Genesis 2 is more Yahwistic in its view. So they begin to move the Bible sort of apart according to sources. I would say that the old, the old theory, the sort of pure Valhausian theory of JEDMP is something that's in the rearview mirror. I do think that scholars tend, by and large, today to still work with the categories of what we call priestly and non-priestly writings. Um, certain writings indicate that they, they, they stem from um, sort of priestly instincts about theology. And they can, you know, there are certain things that you look for to see how that might line up. Um, I'm, you know, I, even if one were to assume that and affirm that, it, that doesn't necessarily lend itself as being non-Mosaic. We'd have to kind of talk about this. Um, but I would say it's not, it's not dead by and large, no. But it's not the same. I mean, I, I tease my students, and I shouldn't do this on, on the Camford at Sanford, I mean, campus at Sanford, I'm being recorded here. But I do tell people, like, J-E-D-N-P, the old sort of source critical theory, it still only gets taught in its pure form in places like, you know, undergrad departments at Sanford. I mean, I, I shouldn't say that. It's not a good thing to say. <laughs> um, but, but I just said it. And please edit that. Um, okay. Um, uh, so Genesis chapter 1. This is... The unnamed place, that's right. Genesis chapter 1. So here, here we have these first verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. That's a fun Hebrew phrase there. The, the Hebrew phrase is tohu wavohu. Um, Robert Alter, in his translation of the five books of Moses, I think did a pretty good job trying to translate this according to the Hebrew assonance and play on sounds. He translated it weltering and wasting. That's actually a pretty good uh, move here. So the, the, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, let me say a few things about Genesis chapter 1. 
There's a theory that comes out of the German critical school, um, and I don't want to get lost in this, but that I would have understood from the standpoint of Israel's religious history that Israel never had an independent doctrine of creation. In other words, creation would have always been a subset of their doctrine of redemption and their doctrine of election. Now, I don't want to chase that, but I sort of leave that before you. And maybe, from a religious historical perspective, maybe there's some truth to that claim. I'll just leave that there and concede it. Nevertheless, there is something significant to be to come to terms with about the way in which the book of Genesis is put together and where it's located in the canon of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 is the way in which the Bible begins. It does not begin with a Toledot pattern either. We wait till Genesis 2-4 to get that. So it's, it's as if the, 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 the narrator and the editor of the book of Genesis is wanting you to know that Genesis chapter 1 is a signal text to help you understand who the primary character is of the God that you are about to engage as you go through this whole of the Old Testament, Genesis, all the way to Malachi, or Genesis all the way to Chronicles, depending on how your books of the Bible are ordered. Now, so Genesis 1 is signal. It's telling us that the doctrine of creation is not a subset of another doctrine. Rather, the doctrine of creation has its own integrity. Why, why do I say this? I say this because there's a kind of move in certain theological circles to see creation as merely a kind of occasion uh, for God's redemption of humanity. Um, in other words, the creation becomes instrumentalized for this, or, or a kind of place for God to work out His redemption of humanity. Um, and, I, and I think that's misplaced. I think rather we want to think in terms of creation itself having its own integrity, and being the place that God redeems humanity, yes, but what's the end goal of the whole of the biblical stories you move from beginning to end? Not dehumanized or de-embodied or spirits floating on some sort of uh, you know cloud elsewhere or some other dimension, but what's the, what's the portrait of the ultimate goal of all humanity, and we say it when we say we believe in the resurrection of the, of the dead and the life of the world to come, the ultimate goal is a new heavens and a new earth. Um, God is taking creation and going through its fallenness and, uh, and recognizing that and bringing it back in time to the fullness of what creation was intended to be and do uh, within uh, God's self-giving to humanity. Point being, creation really matters. Um, it has its own its own integrity, and the way in which the canon sort of lays this out um, indicates that. All right. So Genesis one one. There's no Toledot. We get creation as central. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, that Genesis one one begins in the beginning. John one one also begins in the beginning. There's an intended parallel there between John and Genesis, showing that whatever you think about God, you have to think in the same terms about Jesus of Nazareth. He's involved um, as part of the created means by which God brings uh, this world together. And then, if you look at the ways in which the days are structured, so if you look at the days. There's a kind of literary device that's going on here. Day one is the introduction of light, which is meant to overcome the darkness. Uh, day four shows us now the luminaries that actually are the means by which the light comes, namely the sun and the stars. 
Um, day two and day five, you have the sky that's now set off apart from the land. And then we have on day five, the birds and the fish. Day three, you have the, uh, the land. And then day six, you have the animals and the man and mankind uh, that are that are created. Um, and this is what I want to sort of get to here. The apex of creation in this seven day ordering and structure, the apex is the Sabbath rest of God. Notice something here that's fascinating with how this is set out. You see, it's very common here. God said, let there be light and there was light. And then it ends with, and there was evening and there was morning and there was the first day. But then when you come to Genesis chapter 2, the end of this first creation account, you read this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. What do you find here at the end of the creation account? That common phraseology, and the first day, and evening and morning it was the first day. And evening and morning it was the second day. Evening and morning it was the third day. But when you get to the seventh day, that, that very familiar collocation is not found. Um, it's just the seventh day of God's existence. Well, what, what's, what's significant about this? It goes back to this discussion that we've already had about the importance of the integrity of the doctrine of creation according to its own terms. Um, Luther and uh, St. Augustine, in their own very fascinating commentaries on Genesis, both of them surmise this. And by the way, the Mishnah in the Jewish tradition does the same thing. That the seventh day of God's existence, that Sabbath rest where he ceases from his creative activity. In other words, the seventh day is the special space inhabited by God where now he providentially oversees all of creation that he has ceased from doing that work. He oversees it and he's bringing creation toward its redemptive end from the seventh day. But built into this protology, built into this um, primeval history, is already a kind of future orientation about what God's relationship with His people will ultimately be. This is what, um, this is what Luther actually suggests, and Augustine did in, in, in the same way. If Adam and Eve had never eaten the fruit, now these are dangerous speculations, okay, but if Adam and Eve had never eaten the fruit, both Augustine and Luther suggest that they in time would have been they would have done their earthly duty they have done their earthly work but in time would have been brought into the seventh day of God's existence to experience their relationship with God in a new and more profound way from that from the standpoint of the seventh day um, so built within the very fabric of the seven day order is a kind of understanding and hope for the future itself um, I am making all things new. When Jesus says that, and we hear that said in the book of Revelation, that should fill us with all kinds of sort of resonances about um, the creation story and how hope for the future is actually built into the seventh day, I mean, the seventh day order of God's, of God's creation of the world. One other thing, and then, I'm, then I'll stop, we'll t talk about it. Um, if you read, Don, you mentioned this, if you read in the critical literature, you'll, people got very excited in the, in the 20th century about the discovery of Canaanite uh, mythological tales uh, giving uh, similar stories about creation and the flood, and whether it's the Epic of Gilgamesh or the Enuma Elish. 
And it's quite likely that, um, that the author of Genesis is, recognizes and understands these creation uh, myths that are out there. there. There's some overlap and there's probably some shared knowledge. But here's what's so fascinating about the biblical story over against the competing creation myths that are around in the surrounding Canaanite culture. What do you find in the Enuma Elish? I read some of this to my, to my kids one time because I thought they're going to love this. Um, you have Marduk, who's the god of Babylon, uh, comes into conflict with Tiamat, uh, the female deity. Have you, have you read this? Maybe you're forced to read this in undergrad. Now, it comes into conflict with a female deity. So they go into this, what, what the Germans call this chaos, I mean, this, this uh, cosmos kampf, uh, this sort of, this, uh, this, um, cosmological divine battle that's going on. And so Marduk gets in a fight with Tiamat, and, and if you read the story, it's, it's really kind of fun. He, 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 uh, well, it's not fun, it's disgusting. He, he, he blows into her mouth, um, until Tiamat sort of expands like a balloon, and then he, he cuts her in half, she explodes, her entrails go everywhere, and from her entrails, uh, Marduk uh, makes uh, the firmament and the heavens and the earth. Um, lovely uh, story. Right, love it. Uh, what you find in the biblical narrative is a conscious decision by the theologians of Israel's ancient history and religion. You find a conscious decision to not present Israel's God in that kind of divine cosmic struggle. Um, you have chaotic disorder. You have the darkness, which is something that has to be overcome and ruled. And how do you see God doing that in Genesis chapter 1? You see God doing that with the effective power of His Word. He speaks, and the darkness gets subdued by the presence of the light, and then gets ordered according to the ways in which God wants those ordered. Uh, the chaos, um, another term that, that, that uh, ancient Greece uses, the, the tamot, uh, the deep, um, that chaotic disorder, the primordial you know, sludge, God speaks into that and from that designs the created beauty of the world that we have, that we have before us. So here you have God who's not in any kind of divine struggle with any other being, um, but God who speaks and the world comes into existence. By the way, that's the kind of monotheism that's present in the Old Testament from beginning to end. Not necessarily, and this might be controversial, you can press back on me on this, not necessarily a monotheism that, that does not believe in the existence of other gods. But it's a monotheism that assumes and affirms the priority and the sole sovereignty of Israel's God over all other beings, semi-divine, human, or whatever. He is the sole sovereign God. He's not battling with Marduk. He's not battling with Tiamat. He's not battling with you name whatever deity you want, Baal, El, Ishtar, whatever. He's not battling with them. He's speaking and the world's uh, coming, coming into existence. So one way of, of understanding Genesis chapter 1 within the cultural milieu of the ancient Nerese is this. You have creation without any opposition. That's very different than any creation myth that we have on record to this day from the surrounding cultures. What you have in Genesis chapter 1 is creation and without any, any opposition. Um, 
The two creation accounts relate to each other in this way. I'll say this and then I'll stop. The first creation account gives us an external view of creation. It gives us a big view of what God did to bring the world into existence. And the second creation account gives us a kind of internal look at that creation. What, is, what did life look like on the ground when God took Adam and Eve and he formed them from the dust and then actually put Adam and Eve to work? This is always a fun thing to talk about. He put Adam to work before the fall. I mean, that's I, I, I try to encourage my... I had a son who was belly aching yesterday about having to do homework, and I feel badly for him. He's got a lot of homework this year. Um, I'm thinking, you know, someday uh, we will know the toil of our labor without the burden of of the fall. I mean, you do, I, do, I do believe work is a part of um, before the fall and work will be a part of the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, we're going to be doing something. Uh, we're not just sitting around reading magazines. Um, <laughs> so we'll be doing something. But we'll do it absent the toil and the drudgery that sin has brought into our created world. So here's Adam and Eve working and that sort of moves us up to their relationship with God and the subsequent fall that comes in Genesis chapter 3. Now that was a lot and a little bit inchoate. But any questions you want to ask or pursue about this? Uh, Lori. Yeah. How do you, because if all of this is passing away. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, and I'm still trying to get my mind around some of this, but I think um, in ways that I try to think about the relationship between our physical body and our resurrected body, I, I again, from the biology of it, from the science of it, I realize that we have enormous challenges. You know, the, the Catholic Church, for example, and I'm not big, well, be careful. Catholic Church, um, forboten on cremation. Why? Because of the importance of the resurrection of the body. But we all know that if you stay in the ground long enough, it doesn't matter. You're, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're, this is gonna break apart. This, this shell. So how does this shell, is it related to the resurrected body? In some way, um, in some way in God's providence, there's an organic relationship between our, res- I mean, this is crazy stuff, I think, but it's, re- it's related. And that's why I think we have to wrestle with the New Testament description of what it means for this world to pass away. What does passing away mean? Does it, you know, because you'll have apocalyptic language used about sort of fire and destruction and all this, but is, you know, what, what's the relate? And I think there is some organic relationship between this world and the next. And that's why, um, sort of Christians who have a kind of ecological sensibility about them, I know these things can get kind of way overdone, right? And I realize that. It can become, the sort of ecological mindset can become a religion unto itself, a kind of polytheism in a way that's not good. But a sort of responsible creation ethic that recognizes that we're not polishing brass on the Titanic to care about this created world, that there is some organic relationship between this world and the next world, and there's a responsibility on us to, in the language of Genesis, to domesticate it, to oversee it. That's that's humanity's responsibility. And there's something related to that. Um, so, and with all of that said, again, I'm not sure how all these things work out in, in the relationship between this world and the next, but I do know, and I'm, I'm fully convinced of this, that the next world, the new heavens and the new earth, is a physical existence. Um, it is tangible. It's corporal. Um, there's trees and rivers and fishing. Um, you know, so that, that I, I believe that. That's true. Um, rather than a kind of disembodied existence. I think we have a lot of latent 
Gnosticism and, and kind of, for lack of a better term, kind of platonic dualism that's at play within a, a Christian worldview that's not biblical, that plays the spiritual over against the material. Um, material is bad and the spiritual is good. That, I mean, Genesis 1 tells us out of the gate the material is good. I mean, that's, and when I talk about an, an, an independent doctrine of creation that maintains its integrity, that's really what I'm trying to get after. The material world that God created is good. He said it's good. God loves His world. Um, I mean, we were driving yesterday. We had a day off of soccer. We haven't had it forever, right? Um, so we were like, let's get. In. We all went. We went to Chihaw and drove around, and you know, it was and kind of went through the back way through Talladega Forest, and then you know, we got lost. Went to High to High Falls out there, and you know, it's, it's this world sings of His glory. It does. And this world's still fallen. I mean, there are snakes out there that can bite you and kill you. So we know that. And I don't want to, I'm not trying to romanticize creation. But at the same time, to see its beauty and its glory as witnessing and whispering to something that's other and that's related to it, I think that's certainly the case. Yeah. Any other questions or thoughts? Matt? Um, on the, the, the polytheism Ooh. issue, yeah. would you suggest that the ancient Hebrews struggle just in the same sense we have theological debates between? Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox, whatever, that they struggled to get to a point where they realized that Yahweh wasn't just over against other gods of other cultures, but that the other gods didn't in fact exist. That the, and that their notion of God was just an attempt to reckon with what was already out there in the, in, in the reality. That's the, that's the standard religious historical um, understanding of Israel's uh, religious development. That you move from a kind of monolatry um, you know, in other words, our God alone, but not that not that Marduk doesn't exist or Baal doesn't exist. To once you get into the exile and the post-exile, they move to a more kind of Greco-Roman monotheism, which understood the, the non-existence of other deities. Um, I'm not convinced of that religious historical trajectory per se. Um, you know, I don't know what you think of like we we, we don't mind talking about angels and demons. I mean, it makes us feel weird um, given our modern context, but we we would talk about angels and demons. You know, these sort of angel-demon figures, I mean, you know you know what the Old Testament would call them? Elohim. I think they would call them gods. Um, you know, the recognition that there are, there are evil forces in this world that can be linked to identifiable uh, uh, deity figures, sort of, I think that's there. Um, you do find, when you move into, like, the latter part of Isaiah, what seems to be an indication of what we think of in terms of classical monotheism. You know, no, there's, there are no other gods. No, but even understanding what those claims are actually making, um, I mean, that, that demands some work as well. But I, I would say that, that's the standard view, that they sort of developed in the consciousness of this over time. Yeah. Anything else? Paul? Yeah. I've heard that the way you described the first and the second uh, views as external view of creation, a high-level view, and then a, an internal look at the creation of calendar. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that that that's that response has come from those who are really trying to get away from I mean the, the standard critical view is the first creation account is P, the second creation account is J. And that literary understanding there is trying to overcome that particular divide. Um and I, I and that's fair enough. I mean I I'm I'm not I'm not convinced that it does the kind of apologetic work that people want that view to do. Um but but I'm I think that's fair enough to see that that is kind of a standard view. 
to speak about things in the general and then move into a more kind of pr- particular view. Yeah. But I, but I would say that, I mean, I think wherever you land on those sort of critical issues, I would say it's very important not to see Genesis 1 and 2 in competition with one another. See, this, this is where I think the standard critical view goes. Those two creation accounts are radically divergent views that resemble a religious debate in ancient Israel. I'm not interested in that at all. Um, I mean, I don't know what kind of debates were going on in ancient Israel. I know I have Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and I need to make sure, if I can use Anglican language, to read them in a way that they are not repugnant the one to the other. That, that to me, is a kind of Anglican canonical sensibility of reading. We don't read the Bible so that it's repugnant to itself. Critical scholars, if left to themselves, will read the Bible and make it repugnant to itself. And I would just go and tell you, that's the easy work. I mean, that, that sounds really self-serving. It's easy to find the internal tensions. The harder work is making it not repugnant to itself. And I would say the more fruitful work is that kind of work as well. Yeah. All right, that was fun. <laughs> You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.